Good morning and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. Today I'm joined by David Jones. David has covered Penn State basketball for over 28 seasons and Penn State football for more than 27, first as the beat writer and since 2002 as a columnist about Penn State University. He is currently the Patriot News' full-time sports columnist. He is a multi-award winning journalist, past president of the Football Writers Association. And as far as I know, he was inducted into the U.S. Basketball Writers Hall of Fame in 2018. Is that right, David? Did I get That's that right. Out? That's my okay. proudest moment. Excellent. He's also, football, it's all about the hoops. <laughs> he's also a very proud graduate of The Ohio State University. And in my opinion, is not afraid to do the hard work it takes to find the real story behind the news. I asked David to join me today to talk about a piece he wrote for PennLive.com about how Penn State became a member of the Big Ten over 30 years ago. The story has lots of intrigue and cliffhangers. It's also a great example of the power dynamics that exist at the highest levels of a Power Five conference, the Big Ten. The old scars and the new rivalries are exposed when inviting a new member to join your conference. Senior leaders listening to this podcast will be wise to pay attention to this as the current COVID-19 disruption may in fact lead us to another round of conference realignment. For those wanting to read the story, I've posted a link in the liner notes for this podcast on the web. David, welcome to the podcast. Karen, I owed you. I, I would say I owed you. So I would have done it anyway, but I owed you. You've been a big help in a lot of stories I've written. Well, I, I certainly enjoy your writing style, and I think, I think our, I'm hopeful our listeners will enjoy this conversation. First off, just tell us, what prompted you to write this story right now? I really saw some parallels. I was always going to revisit it anyway, because it's been 30 years uh, this summer when that happened. And I always thought there was some unfinished business, some untold story there, because we never knew who voted no uh, against Penn State's membership. For those who don't really know, they were invited by the presidents only in a kind of a unilateral move with uh, some of the presidents were free to tell their faculty advisors or their coaches or ADs if they wanted to. And many didn't. Jim Duderstadt at Michigan didn't even tell Bo Schembechler. And he blew his top as Bo liked to do anyway. We've had some coaches like that. I kind of prefer coaches like that who, who, who actually will rant. Bill O'Brien was like that at Penn State and I liked him because I'm more like that. So yeah, but he, he lost his mind. A lot of coaches and ADs lost their minds. And the original announcement came down in December of 1989. And there began a six month process where they very nearly had to walk back the invitation and rescind it. They ended up uh, voting on, on what seemed like an official unanimous decision uh, in June of 1990, six months later, and the vote passed barely by seven to three. They needed a supermajority. They barely got it. And the architect of the whole thing, uh, a former vice president at Penn State named Stan Eikenberry, who was beloved around the league, uh, barely got it punched through with the seventh vote which was uh, commandeered by Donna Shalala, none other than the, uh, the Wisconsin chancellor back then, and now um, a congresswoman in South Florida. And between that, she's been uh, head of the Clinton Foundation, and she was uh, Bill Clinton's health and human services director in, in between all that, and president of Miami. 
So she knew a little bit about politics. She was pretty good at that. I, I, was, I was fascinated what I, with what I knew had to be a, a really interesting political tete-a-tete uh, -tete there between some of the nays and the yays, people who saw down the road that Penn State would be a really good addition to the Big Ten and others whose egos were bruised, namely Bob Knight and Bo Schembechler, that they weren't even consulted um, and were more concerned with that than the big picture. Uh, I think Penn State was a no-brainer for both Penn State and the Big Ten, mutually beneficial to both. Um, I, I ran into a uh, ESPN exec, I, I remember, in, in Chicago in 1995, and it was understood that everything was off the record. I was going to try to get any quotes out of him, and he said right then, he said, there will never be an acquisition to one league because he never believed Notre Dame would get in a league, and I still don't. I think this temporary thing in the AC, ACC is temporary. You probably have a better opinion on that than I do, but he said there would never be an addition to a conference more important or more lucrative than Penn State was to the Big Ten. Yeah. Um, yeah. He said it was, it was an absolute masterstroke by the presidents and Delaney, but when it was going down, there were a lot of egos bruised, there were, there were a lot of old, as you said, old, old fights that had to be refought. And it came down to a seven to three vote that was barely put over the line by Arnold Weber's vote from Northwestern at the 11th hour. It was, it was quite a, I always thought there was an untold story there and it turns out there was. It's just, there really is. It's just that it had to, everyone had to get old enough where they didn't give a damn anymore. <laughs> <laughs> So take us back to 30 years ago. Stan Eikenberry is sitting in the, in the home of the University of Iowa president, and he thinks he's got it all lined up, but then what happens? Uh, he didn't at that point. Um, he, that was after the six-month period, and he knew damn well he didn't have it all lined up. Okay. Um, I'll go back to uh, Chicago in, in December of, of 1989 when they did think they had it, had it all warmed up uh, or lined up. Uh, and, and months before that, uh, they brought in um, – uh, Penn State's uh, Bryce Jordan, who the basketball arena is named after now, was the president back then at the behest of Joe Paterno and Steve Garbin and Jim Tarman, who all thought it was a good idea to get in a conference. And the Big East thing had blown up. The Eastern Conference thing had blown up for Paterno. So they really thought being in a conference was a, a good idea from a security standpoint. And it turned out they were right that Penn State couldn't be a, a independent anymore and, 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 and make the kind of revenue they needed to support all those sports. So they, they asked, and, and this, had, I think, John, was it John Oswald who was the president in 1980? I think that was his name. Sounds Before right. Before my time. And yeah. he had floated the idea to the Big Ten as early as 1980, I think. So they sent um, word out to Eikenberry, who they had the Penn State connection with. He'd been a, a vice president. He was the Council of Ten, the esteemed Council of Ten chairman. And so he was an important guy. Um, that was the, what is now called the Council of Presidents and Chancellors. Uh, he said, okay, well, bring, bring your guys in and give a presentation and see what the presidents think. They did in Chicago, everyone seemed on board. Everyone thought it was a great idea, according to Stan Eikenberry. And um, they went ahead and announced it a little bit later with Jim Delaney, a brand new commissioner, just like Kevin Warren, rookie commissioner, um, getting on a conference call, summoning all the different athletic directors, one of them was Bo Schembechler, uh, to a conference call, and many of these athletic directors didn't know what it was about. 
the only people who knew were the ones who were lucky enough to have a chancellor and president who clued them in. Uh, Barry Alvarez did know, according to Donna Shalala, but I know uh, Bo Schembechler didn't know because he told me himself. I wrote a story about this in 1994. He said he got on the phone. He had no idea what the conference call was about. And Jim Delaney comes on and says, gentlemen, Penn State is going to be the next member of the Big Ten, as if it was a fait accompli. And Bo said he waited and there was silence. And he finally said, you got to be shitting me. <laughs> as only Bo could. Only Bo can, that's right. I, I, went to the, I went to the mattresses in the office trying to get that quote in in some form so that people would know, even with hyphens in place of some of the letters, to get that in the paper. In 1994, it was a big deal to put even camouflaged profanity in the paper, but I really thought it was important that that, that, that just so people would know what he said, because it was so Bo Schembechler. And I, 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 it must have been a couple of hours that I worked on that with the managing editor and the sports editor, but I got it in um, so that people, I think it was S hyphen, 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 ING. And there began that six month period where I'm talking about where a lot of the athletic directors pulled back faculty reps too. I mean, people who felt like they were being compromised, their power was being invaded by the presidents who, you know, at that time, the Knight Commission had just... Uh, taken hold. And the Big Ten presidents had just before that pretty much created autonomy for themselves. They were, they had addicted, they, they had incorporated and they had made their power pretty much dictatorial. Uh, and Bo Schembechler told me in the phone in 1994, he was, said at that point, Bo Schembechler, referring to himself in the third person, decided he didn't want to be an athletic director anymore because the presidents were going to be running things. And uh, there were quotes I didn't put in this story uh, this morning where um, I guess Bo that fall in, at the Big Ten meetings in Chicago just went on a rant at the luncheon <laughs> about how the presidents were taking over everything and they were going to screw up athletics. They didn't know what they were doing. They would screw stuff up and then not pay any attention to athletics for 10 months and then come back and screw something else up. And he said this at the Big Ten luncheon, which is supposed to be a celebration. And Stan Eikenberry said he came up to him later in the, in the, in the, in the outside the ballroom and got him aside and said, what the hell? What are you, what are you doing saying stuff like that? You can't, what, what are you, what's wrong with you? And Bo said, he, he said, Bo looked at him like, what I say? <laughs> what I say, what I do? Because that's the way Bo was. Uh, so, but that, that was true. I mean, uh, the, the, all those faculty reps, ADs, coaches thought their, fa their power was being infringed upon. And very frankly, it, it was at that point. And let me just uh, draw an important distinction, especially for those who don't quite follow the Big Ten as closely as you and I do. But Bo Schembechler was, was uh, an architect of the Big Ten. He was considered, it was Michigan and Ohio State and everybody else. It was the Big Two and the Little Eight. And he had enormous power. And at the time, the NCAA also was run by athletic directors. So for presidents to take control in 1989 and 90 was a bold move, but it probably foreshadowed presidential control further down in the mid-90s. And, and up to now. Yes. As we're seeing in the Big Ten. Correct. Where the presidents 
Have, uh, do you know of any who have really communicated this decision that they've made on, on postponing football? They, they're not very good, and they've left Kevin Weaver, or they've, 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 they've left Kevin Warren out there kind of hanging out to dry, where, but, but on the other hand, he should be better as a communicator than he is. Uh, but if he's going to be the figurehead, yeah, he's got to sell this decision. No one's selling anything. It's as if the presidents believe they don't have to communicate. Well, yeah, they do. I mean, I think we understand the rationale to this decision, but that doesn't preclude people from communicating with their subordinates. You, you have to, and I think that's what Jim, you, would, you tell me you would know better than I do. Jim Delaney was very good at doing that. He might have been tough. There might have been screaming matches. But, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, whoever disagreed with the decision, you'd say, look, this is the decision we've made. We have to have a unified voice from here on out. You might not like it. You might not agree with it. But we talked about it. I've talked to you about it. Now let's all get on board. Is that, is that pretty much yeah, right? Yeah, I, I would say that um, in 1989, uh, it was a bold decision, but there wasn't the kind of media organization that, that there is today. There was really only an issue in the Big Ten cities. It wasn't a nationwide issue, as I recall it. And I will say this, Jim, he may have been a very, uh, a, a huge visionary, but he also understood how to work with presidents and how to corral them into not breaking ranks. Yes. And a term that he would use a lot with them is keeping your powder dry. He would, <laughs> he would say to them, this is not the time to pop off. There'll be yeah. other times to pop off, but this isn't it. Yeah, you and have your fight what, behind the curtain, right? You have your arguments and screaming matches behind the scenes. Exactly. And it's okay to do it then. Exactly. So, you know, we, we don't know enough, at least I don't know enough about Kevin Warren yet to know whether that's his MO. But I also want to say, at this moment in time, there are probably more new Big Ten presidents than at almost any time in the last 15 or 20 years. There's been a lot of turnover. So even the presidents are new to all of this and maybe, you know, hesitant to, to go too far out on a limb. I don't know. But continue telling us how Stan Eikenberry uh, ended up in uh, Iowa City without having the votes he needed. Yeah, there's so, so gradually there, there was an erosion of what he thought was a unanimous, not just a consensus, but un unanimity. And there, there began to be nuts. And uh, it, it, it was decided that they would, they would vote on a decision that everyone kind of understood before that was already made. When Jim Delaney announced it to the ADs, it was like it had already been made. Uh, but by the time everyone got finished with the blowback, he got to Iowa City, they had their first straw poll, and this was a regularly scheduled spring meeting. But this was by far the biggest issue on the agenda. Uh, it was uh, June 2nd and 3rd, 1990. Uh, the first night, first day and night was at uh, um, the president of, of Iowa's house. And the straw poll that day was five to five. He didn't, he not only didn't have 10 to nothing, he didn't even have his supermajority that he needed. He needed seven votes for Penn State to get in the league and he had five. And there were, there were five, there were three hard no's he could tell from Michigan, Michigan State and Indiana, two of whom were uh, being pushed around, he thought, by Bob Knight and Bo Schembechler. 
he was shocked that Michigan State went along with Michigan, as Donna Shalala was, the chancellor of Wisconsin, who was kind of his biggest ally. And he had to flip Nils Hasselmo from Minnesota and Arnie Weber from Northwestern. Um, I had always thought, I did this story in 94, I always thought Hasselmo had been the one who voted no, but it was uh, Don DiBiagio from, from Michigan State. And John DiBiagio just uh, died, I think, earlier this year. I would have I had him in the story too. Uh, he died in February. Um, but that stunned Eikenberry and it also stunned Shalala. And they didn't know that until they got to Iowa City and then they, they understood just what they were up against. And Stan Eikenberry ended up calling Bryce Jordan on Sunday morning before the vote and saying, I don't, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to do this. He was pessimistic. Uh, they went to the conference room. They, the second day of meetings was uh, in an administrative building, something like, um, he, it, no one could remember exactly where they were. It was some, Sandy Ward had organized uh, the president of Iowa where they were gonna do everything. So it was some administrative building like Old Main at Penn State, big conference room, a small conference room. And they got down to the voting and, and Eikenberry could tell they didn't have the votes. And Donna Shalala, the only woman in the room, by the way, came up with the idea of having an adjournment and seeing if they could, they could go out. And, and she understood what the problem was with Arnold Weber of Northwestern. He was afraid that the Big Ten was going to switch them out for Penn State, because at that point, this was before all the league hopping, no one could envision a Big Ten that was a 11 teams. It didn't make sense. And Northwestern, as you remember back then, wasn't doing well in football at all. They had been a joke, or as Howard Eskin would say, a joke is a joke. <laughs> yeah. I had to get my Howard Eskin in there. Because, you, know, you know what you are, Karen? You're a joke. And you know what that is? That's a joke. Now get out of here. That, that's a silly sports reference for those of you in other places. Oh, I'll bet you got it. You got a, a few Howard Eskin fans at Penn. Yeah, Come on. Okay. Drexel. <laughs> Uh, so, so, yeah, Northwestern football was horrible, and there had been some, some rumors that maybe the Big Ten would jettison them. They were the only private school. They didn't seem to value athletics at all. In fact, there were, there were, a, lo there were a lot of faculty that wanted uh, sports to fail at Northwestern, kind of like the University of Chicago, to prove that they were an academic institution and not an athletic farm. So... Arnie Weber was really afraid of that, and they adjourned the meeting, and Donna Shalala went over to him. Stan Eikenberry went to Nils Hasselmo of Minnesota. Stan was saying to Hasselmo, look, if we can get to seven votes with you, will you be with us as the seventh vote? Hasselmo had sympathy and a fairly, fairly affinity for the idea of Penn State in the league but he was getting a lot of blowback from his athletic director, Rick Bay. But he had a friendship with uh, Stan Eikenberry. Uh, he kind of liked the idea, I think, of, of Penn State in the league. So he said, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna die on this, on this field if I'm only the fifth or sixth vote, but if I'm the seventh, okay. So he had him, meanwhile, Donna Shalala and, and um, Eikenberry came over with Shalala also then, and they flipped Arnold Weber. And the way they did it was 
uh, Donna said to him, look, Arnie, I know you have a hard time with this, but if we make a motion, if I make a motion and we pass it before the vote that says we will not expand or make any sort of change in our membership for the next several years, she couldn't remember how many she said, um, then will you be okay with this? This will prove that we're not going to switch you guys out for Penn State. We want you, we want to keep you here. And Donna said they never had any intention of kicking Northwestern out of the league. This was just a fear that Arnold Weber had. And he, and he kind of went, all right, okay, I guess it's all right. And, and so then they had the votes. Um, they, they made the motion. Uh, they took the vote. And Eikenberry said when they walked back in, he looked around and he could surmise that people understood that he had the votes. It was, it was like, a, it was like the, the Seinfeld episode at uh, Del Boca Vista phase two when uh, uh, Frank Costanza loses it. Or no, it's, it's, it's uh, Jerry Seinfeld's dad loses his presidentship of, uh, and, and they, they kind of knew they had the votes then. They did, they got, they got it by seven to three, the narrowest possible margin and Penn State was in the league. And had they not been in the league, uh, Gene Corrigan told me several years ago, he used to be the commissioner of the ACC, that they absolutely would have had Penn State in, in a heartbeat. He would have made it his business to have Penn State in the league. So think of the ramifications there. Yeah. If Penn State's in the ACC rather than the Big Ten uh, in 1990. Well, you know, Maryland sure as hell isn't in the, in the Big Ten right now. Uh, maybe they go after Florida State and Miami because those would have been good additions anyway in the ACC. But Maryland doesn't leave. Does the ACC go after Boston College? I don't think so. Maybe not. Yeah. 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 I sure as hell don't think they go after Pitt because Penn State already gave them everything in television and media coverage that, that Pitt would have given them. Yeah. Uh, Syracuse? Yeah, maybe. But, but the landscape has completely changed. You, you can't imagine Rutgers in the Big Ten. Maryland wouldn't have been the Big Ten. Everything of the conference hopping would have changed over those next few years, both in 2003 with the raid on the Big East schools by the ACC and in uh, 20, 2011 with the Nebraska edition and 2014 with the uh, Maryland and Rutgers editions. Maybe Big Ten goes out. I, I imagine the Big Ten would have gone after Nebraska, but maybe a lot earlier. Uh, I don't think Notre Dame would have had anything to do with anybody because they were double dipping in their contract. They had the NBC contract, but there would have been a lot of major ramifications if Penn State's in the ACC rather than the Big Ten. So bringing us back to 2020 and, and, and the heat that Kevin Warren is taking, really uh, as, as the front line of, of the 14 presidents in the Big Ten. Um, put, just put your hat on for a second and try to give us a sense of where the Big Ten might go procedurally in the next few months, knowing that they've got to probably get a supermajority, knowing that they have a, a subcommittee meeting this weekend talking about uh, medical testing and trying to get up to speed with the latest research and all that type of thing. Can they get an entire conference back on the field in football, 14 teams, or will they splinter, do you think, as schools like Ohio State and others are arguing, if you don't want to play, that's fine, but we want to play. And by the way, in Columbus, the attorney general has come out and said that he thinks he's got a cause of action for breach of contract 
if Ohio State is not permitted to play under the Big Ten rules? I think the, the smartest thing to do is allow the schools that want to play to play, or you could have a complete insurrection. Uh, with the, the quick antigen testing that we have, that we've, we've gotten in the last two, what's have been two or three weeks, and I wrote about this in April, that that's, and I talked to Sandy Barber about it. We, we have texted back and forth about, about antigen testing being the thing they needed. Because a quick turnaround, 15 minutes, point of care, that's the way to go. And they have it. They have, they're cheap. They're like five bucks a piece or 15 bucks a piece, something like that. Um, and you can, you, you can test every single day. And that's what they needed to do this. You know, pro teams, they've got all the money in the world because they got billionaire owners. I don't know if you've watched Hard Knocks, but the protocol they've set up for every time someone goes through a doorway is amazing. Well, yeah. they can afford to do that. Right, right. Universities can't. They needed this kind of testing and now they have it. I'm at the point where, you know, I'm in, I'm in July, I'm going, this is idiocy. This is nuts to even play. I'm to the point now, if they can figure out the legalities around liability and whether a waiver is actually binding in a court of law, if the kids who really, really want to play and all the coaches who really, really want to be involved, well, okay, if they sign something that says, I want to do this, I could opt out, I'm not, I want to do this, is this binding? I think that's the linchpin to the whole thing. But the NCAA has ruled that out. The NCAA, the NCAA has prohibited athletes signing right. waivers. Yeah. From, from having waivers. Right. But the NCAA doesn't have any control over the Power right. Five. And that's right, too. That's absolutely They right. don't have any control over the Power Five. The Power right. Five, can, they, they've been granted aut autonomy by the, by the NCAA. Right. So the Power Five conferences can go about their business. They have been granted autonomy. This is a matter of whether they think they're on the hook for liability. And I don't think they're sure of that. And I think all the Big Ten lawyers behind the scenes are trying to cross all their T's and dot their I's and make certain before they make this move, or the president's ain't gonna do it. And that's, this is the linchpin that nobody ever talks about because it's not sexy and it's complicated. And besides that, what about long-term care, which you alerted me to, which I had no idea about before I wrote about it in the spring, what about long-term care in, in case or, or liability for some of these guys having some sort of lasting heart or lung damage? Yeah. Now, we're not even, I'm not talking about people being on ventilators or dying or even being in dire circumstance. What if they're just impeded mm -hmm. with their lungs mm -hmm. gucked up for a year or two years? And that goes through the draft and a second round draft choice is all of a sudden an undrafted free agent. Right. right. Who pays for that? Who's liable for that? Is that, and if, if the universities sign off on, on some sort of long-term care that they don't for the rest of the students, doesn't that make them professionals? Yeah, exactly. Makes them what we've always known they were anyway. Exactly. professionals and not amateurs and there's a whole other ball of wax yeah that can just explode this is what the presidents are thinking about they're thought, thought, thinking about professionalism versus the amateur model which gives them the name image and likeness and they're, they're thinking about liability 
And, and I'm, I'm going to add one more thing because of the uniqueness that is the Big Ten and, and the Pac-12 has the same parameter, but they do equal revenue sharing. So if you've got eight teams playing yeah. and six teams not playing, yeah. do How the six teams that? not playing also get an equal revenue share even though they just sat on the sidelines? And, and Ohio State's going to say, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Rutgers is not going to get an equal share, no. Right, right. So, I don't know if you've seen, but the Rutgers president is, has been very much against all of this. Yes, and very outspoken about it. Uh, yeah. And as a former Stanford football player, he's pretty aware of what's going on. He's got a pretty good opinion. Yeah, yeah he does. He does. He does. So it's, it's fine for all the coaches and parents to scream and yell. And by the way, a lot of the parents, it seems to me that they're – you know, the ringleader of this thing where they went and protested in Chicago at the Big Ten offices was the mother and father of a long snapper who had never played. And he was going to finally play his senior year, you know. Right. You're probably not the, the kind of, <laughs> your kid is probably not what this is all about, you know. It might be his experience, but uh, as far as liability and, and a future pro career, no. That's, your kid's not what it's about. So I don't know. Well, I I'm at the point where I'm, I'm ready to let them play. Yeah. All the kids. I, you know, I just wanted to protect kids from, and parents who didn't know what they were doing, kind of in a way that we should, we should have gotten ahead of the banks before subprime mortgages, where they were just signing, signing away who knows how many thousands of dollars if something happens to their kid. Yeah. Because they didn't know what they were doing. Absolutely right. That's all. At this point, I think everyone knows what they're doing, so let them play. Well, David Jones, I want to thank you so much for uh, a great story, number one, and number two, about a perspective um, about what's going on today and how this whole behind-the-scenes thing works. Karen, I'm glad to have been able to pay you back, at least in part, (laughs) for all the help you've given me. You've given me a lot of perspective and... uh, this is kind of like a mutual admiration, like on a talk show, isn't it? You know, where, where the, they applaud for each other. The Sammy Maudlin <laughs> show on Second <laughs> City TV. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, anytime. I'm, uh, I'm thrilled we could get together, and I hope you have a great rest of your weekend. You too. Okay.